very long time. What is your verdict? Find the defendant guilty. The deadly narcotic. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you've got to get a hold of yourself. You're listening to Law Talking, an independent podcast brought to you by Greenway Chambers. In this episode, Frank Hicks and Ian Roberts look at recent events, including challenges to COVID-19 restrictions in the High Court and Victoria, and the settlement of climate change litigation brought in the Federal Court in respect of superannuation. Penny Thew and Fahim Anwar discuss recent developments in the law for general protection claims under Part 3.1 of the Fair Work Act 2009. And in the final segment, you get to know me. My name is Shani McPhee. I am an assistant clerk at Greenway Chambers, and I will talk to you about my love for performing aerial acrobatics. My name's Frank Hicks, and I'm joined by Ian Roberts. G'day, Ian. How are you? I'm well, thanks, Frank. How are you going? I'm very well indeed. I'm very well indeed. Now, it's been a little while since our last podcast, and a few things have happened, uh, not least associated with the uh, pandemic that will come to define 2020. There have been three cases that have been dealt with uh, recently. And the first one involves uh, Clive Palmer, serial litigant, someone uh, familiar very much with the courts and including the High Court. Uh, what did you make of the decision that came out of the High Court? I think it surprised a number of people. I, I must say it's an interesting case because we don't have a decision yet, obviously, so we can read into the transcript, I suppose, and what we've heard in the, in the press. But it turned on Section 92, which deals with interstate trade, commerce and intercourse being absolutely free. The argument, as I understand it, was focused on the intercourse limb. And, of course, that part of the Constitution, as with all of the Constitution, was drafted um, well before internet, electronic transfers and, and so on. So interstate trade, commerce and intercourse was quite different at the time. And in circumstances where there, we've got a pandemic and the risks and the health risks are associated with that, I must say it's not all that surprising that a court may take the view that the ability to carry on trade, commerce and intercourse using electronic funds transfers and what we've learnt during the pandemic as to um, dealing with business and and trading over long distances using web-based platforms and so on, it's not all that surprising that a court may find that a physical presence is not required and the restriction on the ability to physically travel into a state doesn't necessarily mean that you are offending Section 92. Yes, there are a couple of interesting aspects of the decision and I've read the transcript and obviously to lay the background to those that don't know, this was a challenge effectively to a special direction issued under the Western Australian legislation to effect a lockdown. The question arose as to whether or not Clive Palmer, who sought to be declared an exempt traveller and therefore able to enter Western Australia, could be denied such a right by reference to Section 92. And the court was obviously concerned as to whether or not Section 92 of the Constitution was directed to the legislation or the administrative act that had been undertaken pursuant to that legislation. And that certainly featured in some of the back and forth that occurred between bench and bar during the course of argument. But the other aspect that was obviously very interesting is, as you say, the provision of the Constitution, Section 92, is quite widely drafted. The term or the phrase absolutely free, tends to suggest it is a freedom without fetter. But of course, there have always been limitations or exceptions applied. Uh, examples given of you know infectious fruit and a need for quarantine for other reasons being prevented from crossing the borders. And my understanding was that there was a focus on whether really ultimately this was a measure that was reasonably necessary in all the circumstances having regard to the risks associated with it. 
Yeah, um, I think that ultimately they, I think they'll probably form a view that trade commerce and intercourse can operate remotely without the um, the cost that might be incurred by the absence of a physical presence, and particularly in the con- in the circumstances of a, a global pandemic and the need to put in place particular measures to stop the infection, particularly across borders, of, of the uh, COVID-19. Well, that will certainly be an interesting conclusion because, I mean, one thing is without doubt, and that is that Clive Palmer is a physical presence, <laughs> and, uh, one that one who makes his presence felt, and whether or not he could make his presence felt digitally or virtually as well as he could physically uh, is something that maybe the High Court will deal with or maybe they'll deal with it on more um, uh, legal grounds. Anyway, there was a second case that was uh, dealt with by the High Court uh, that uh, uh, was considered, and this tried to challenge the uh, lockdown that had been applied in Victoria uh, by a particular hotelier down there uh, on the grounds that there was an implied freedom of movement under the Constitution. Um, Ian, did you see uh, this case come before the courts as well? Well, I, I saw the result that was reported. There's no decision as I understand it. It's as simple as there is no implied freedom of movement within the state, as I understand it, but we'll, we'll know more, I suppose, when they publish their reasons. Well, certainly they couldn't find one within the Constitution, as I understood it, and uh, government, the Victorian government, uh, as I understand it, was not even called upon to uh, make its oral address. So that was um, dealt with fairly clearly. And the last case concerned the curfew that was applied down under by the Andrews government in Victoria uh, and is a decision called Luello, which is spelled L-O-I-E-L-O for those that are interested. And it was an application in respect of the curfew that uh, it ran counter to the Victorian Charter of Human Rights and the entitlement to freedom of movement and liberty. Now, the decision is quite lengthy and it deals with a lot of administrative law concepts associated with the power of judicial review and the provisions of the Charter of Human Rights. But ultimately, I think it's fair to say that it did again come down to the fact that as the government was able to demonstrate a strong public health reasons for the or reason for the measures that have been put in place, that the uh, freedoms that are guaranteed under the Victorian Charter of Human Rights were secondary and could not stand or exempt anyone from those particular provisions. Now, I just wanted to touch upon something quickly. Um, Ian wasn't actually involved in this discussion. Those regular listeners might recall that Lucas Shipway and I spoke about uh, climate change litigation that had been brought in the federal court. And one of the cases that was brought was in respect of Rest Super by one of its uh, subscribers, an individual by the name of Mark McVeigh. And it was interesting to see that he settled his case with Rest Super shortly before it was due to go to hearing. We don't know the details of the settlement. It's confidential, as these things often are. But there were public statements given as part of the settlement whereby REST Super recognised, or pledged, I should say, for the first time to have a zero carbon footprint by 2050, and that REST Super agreed with Mr McVeigh to continue to develop its management processes for dealing with the financial risks of climate change on behalf of its members and that it acknowledged that climate change could lead to catastrophic economic and social consequences and was an important concern of REST's members. Now, Ian, obviously we don't know anything about the settlement, but I think you read in or as part of this issue that there'd been an opinion published by two of our best-known barristers, Noel Hutley and Sebastian Hartford-Davis. 
Yeah, I, I, mean, you, I think you said that they've been around for a while. I'm not sure where the, well, the circumstances in which they um, were initially prepared, but uh, that seems to have been a matter that the parties took into account when they considered their respective risks and determined to settle the matter. It's fair to say that the view, and I think it's a fairly widely accepted view now, that super funds and the like and boards and so on are on risk and their management and investment strategies have to take into account the risk of climate change. And what I think the opinions said was that it's only a matter of time before one or both of those parties, uh, boards, super funds, hedge funds and and so on, will be on the wrong end of litigation arising out of the failure to take into account the the risk that is accepted now of climate change. And it seems to me that where governments and government agencies have um, perhaps not quite picked up the ball and run with it, insurers who will ultimately bear that risk are undoubtedly going to drive the necessary change in that sphere. I think that's I think that's very right, and uh, <clears throat> it's certainly a rapidly developing area, and very topical with um, the dreaded bushfire season again almost upon us. Now, the other major aspect of at least Commonwealth law that's come out is the federal government's proposal, or at least draft legislation, for the Anti-Corruption Commission, the Commonwealth Integrity Commission, or CIC, as it's described, and it's been largely friendless, I've got to say, outside um, the federal coalition itself. It's been described as a toothless tiger. It's been criticised for the lack of public hearings, at least insofar as there are allegations of corruption associated with the public sector. I think the matters of allegations of corruption within law enforcement are being heard publicly. But Ian, what are your initial thoughts about this proposal? And we do know that, of course, the consultation period continues and that this legislation isn't finalised, but certainly it's the first um, dump, if I can put it that way, after an issue which I think has been rolling at least since the federal election of 2019, if not earlier. I just find it difficult to understand the apparent reluctance on the part of the federal government to deal with this requirement in the same way as the states have done it. They don't have to reinvent the wheel. They can look at the model that's um, been floating around for ages, and in New South Wales at least, and other states, They've got a template. There are some obvious failings in this legislation that are covered in the state equivalent. So it's just beyond me why you wouldn't deal with it properly and include all of those sorts of safeguards that the state legislation has incorporated. Well, I think some of the criticisms, to sum it up, have been basically this is actually worse than having no Corruption Integrity Commission at all because it uh, presents the appearance of having some sort of facility, whereas in fact, when one looks at the detail, which the devil always resides in, um, it really doesn't give you uh, anything at all. And indeed, uh, it almost goes the other way too far because not only does it set a very high bar to start an investigation with prevention or preclusion from any anonymous tip-offs with respect to corruption within the public sector, it actually creates a criminal offence for certain people who make unwarranted complaints designed to cause detriment to another person to be faced with. So not only do you have whistleblowers not encouraged because they won't be able to start investigations by giving such a tip-off, but you also have them potentially facing criminal charge by this legislation so as to actively deter any sort of revelation to this institution or to this particular facility to try to investigate matters of public interest. And uh, I think it's also been observed over time that the suggestion that somehow corruption resides or could reside within state jurisdictions, but not at the Commonwealth level, particularly having regard to some of the deals that are being done, is just 
absurd. And uh, really, uh, we as the public, I think, deserve much better. Now, the last thing I wanted to observe is that an article appeared in the Sydney Morning Herald, which I think caught everyone's attention, about um, particular individuals working from home. <laughs> yeah, I think NCAT's just waiting to get this one <laughs> and run with it. And, uh, yeah, now uh, this concerns the strata complex known as uh, the Monumental, which is uh, here in Sydney, actually the Monument Complex, I should say, uh, in Surrey Hills, and it follows on the heels of the recent Court of Appeal decision where the uh, strata bylaws associated with uh, uh, not being able to keep pets were overruled. Um, But this concerns a rather different activity. (laughs) Ian, please, describe it. Well, it seems it's only a short step from the Blue Heel at the Boogie Nights. Um, This one involves um, use of the premises for um, the the production of of, of pornographic movies or shows and um, podcasts. podcasts And and some some of the neighbours are are a bit concerned about um, the use to which the premises are being put. Well, I think the article described them, um, I think, fairly neutrally, if not in an understated way, as failing to practice social distancing during meet and greet organised via social media. Um, the extent of the failure, I think, seems to be the problem and indeed the noise generated yeah, by that failure. I mean, surely they've met before. <laughs> well, maybe. They could have been wearing masks. <laughs> maybe they didn't know. So, But in any event, they uh, have been issued with a disturbing the peaceful enjoyment of surrounding lots with extreme noise notices uh, by the Strata Committee and Unless they uh, modify their ways, it may very well end up in NCAT and um, I can't wait for the reason. <laughs> I expect it will settle at mediation. It would, I inter- it would be an interesting mediation. <laughs> Conducted perhaps with, as you say, 70s music and <laughs> bottle of white. <laughs> Shag pile and <laughs> lava lamp. <laughs> all, the, all the good stuff. Well, look, Ian, I think that's covered it off uh, sufficiently for where we are at the moment. On with the show. Thanks, Frank. See you next time. Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? Frank Hicks here, and I'm joined today by uh, Penny Thu and Fahim Anwar, and we're going to be talking about general protection claims under Part 3.1 of the Fair Work Act 2009. Uh, Penny, welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much, Frank. And Fahim, and to you, welcome. Thank you, Frank. Very excited to be on the podcast. We're very excited to have you. Penny, perhaps we can start by asking you to just describe generally uh, what are general protection claims under Part 3.1 of the Fair Work Act? Yes, thank you very much, Frank. They're not new claims. It's not a new jurisdiction by any stretch of the imagination. They're claims that can be made by employees or former employees most commonly against employers for compensation under the Fair Work Act and the imposition of penalties as well. The penalties are ordinarily payable to the individual applicant who's making the claim as well. So what it amounts to is something that can be a fairly significant claim by the individual employee. And these kinds of claims have taken on some additional significance in the recent year or so, simply because of a number of cases that have been delivered by the full court of the federal court over the course of about the last 12 or 18 months. We're obviously talking about the employer-employee relationship. Is it focused on questions of dismissal or is it in the context of broader relations? 
There are dismissal claims and non-dismissal claims, but the most common claim is when an employee has been terminated. Usually that's because then the employee can claim economic loss after the termination of employment. If the employee remains employed, then usually there's not a great deal of economic loss that can be shown. So it's not going to be worth the employee's while. Plus, of course, there's an employment relationship to maintain. But for a terminated employee, this is a fairly common port of call and becoming more regularly used now by employees, especially in light of one of the recent decisions of the federal court, a decision of Hizidagan and Technology One, in which an award of $5.2 million plus penalties was awarded several months ago. That's on appeal to the full court of the federal court. But until that time, and unless it's overturned, that's an award that will, I suspect, inspire other employees to make a claim. There are some distinct issues in relation to the Ruhizidagan decision that don't necessarily apply to every employee, including the fact that the applicant employee in the Ruhizidagan decision was on a remuneration package of about $850,000 per annum. I see. So there's no jurisdictional limit associated with the nature of the employment? It's not capped by any salary or wage that's being received? No, it's quite unlike the unfair dismissal jurisdiction. It's completely distinct from that and very different. The provision of the Fair Work Act under which damages are awarded was held a number of years ago by the High Court to be at large, which means, as you say, there's no jurisdictional limit and any form of relief that the court deems appropriate. So if it's appropriate, that's the word that's used in the legislation, the relief can be awarded. So reinstatement could be awarded plus unlimited damages. Of course, they have to be causally linked with the loss or damage that's proved. Of course. And I I know that you and Fahim and Ashley Cameron of our chambers have given a detailed CPD on this. And if any of our listeners are interested in that, I would certainly commend that greatly to them. But Fahim, can I come to you? We're talking about federal legislation. So in general terms, how are these cases started and what needs to be articulated by way of plea? Sure. So you start the case in the Fair Work Commission and generally the process that happens is the there will be a conciliation in the Fair Work Commission, which is an early attempt to try and resolve the claim before the parties incur too much in legal expenses and so on. And if that's not successful, the Fair Work Commission will provide a certificate which then authorises you to go to either the Federal Circuit Court or the Federal Court, essentially. And that's the stage at which you would plead out your case. Now, broadly speaking, there are three elements to every general protection claim. Firstly, there is the protection and what that essentially is is the Fair Work Act has a number of things that it protects. So just to give you an example, there are protected attributes such as race, gender, sex and the Act prohibits an employer from discriminating against their employees on the basis of those attributes. Or alternatively, you have workplace rights and the Act protects employers from taking adverse action against their employees because they have exercised a 
workplace right or they intend to exercise workplace right. So those are the first element, the protections, and you would need to identify what is the specific protection you are relying on. The second aspect that needs to be pleaded is the adverse action itself. So um, when you and Penny were speaking, you guys were talking about a dismissal. That's not the only form of adverse action, although that's, you know, that will often be the adverse action in question. But it could be other things like, for example, treating an employee differently from other employees or discriminating against them in some way. So you need to identify the relevant adverse action as well. And one advantage of a general protection claim is that once the applicant has identified and pleaded the protection and the adverse action, there is a reverse onus under Section 361 of the Fair Work Act, which shifts the onus to employee to prove that the adverse action wasn't actually taken because of the protected reason. It was taken for some other reason. So that's essentially the three parts of an adverse action claim. Thank you. And Penny, you mentioned that there'd been some significant developments, not only $5.2 million damages awards over the course of the last year or so. Can you just run us through those decisions as they've been handed down and what those developments have been? Absolutely. Thank you, Frank. Yes. So as Fahim was saying, the jurisdiction itself has its roots in the freedom of association provisions that used to be in what was the Federal Industrial Relations Act at one point and then the Workplace Relations Act and the iterations have simply worked their way through to the Fair Work Act. And so it currently there are freedom of association provisions that find their form in what is called the exercise of a workplace right protections So that's the focus of the CPD that we gave today. And then the other focus of the CPD that we gave today was under Section 351, which is entitled discrimination. It's actually quite different to discrimination as it's known under anti-discrimination legislation. It has far simpler tests which means it's very attractive for employees because it's not as many hoops to jump through. Plus, of course, there's penalties associated with it, payable to the employee, plus there is the rebuttable presumption that Fahim was talking about, which applies to every form of protection under Part 3.1. And so the exercise of a workplace right jurisdiction, that's under Sections 340 and Section 341, they operate together. And what that does is it says that if an employee has a workplace right or exercises a workplace right, so the employee only has to have it. And if the employee is subjected to adverse action, namely termination primarily, because of having the workplace right or exercising it, then the employer has to prove that there wasn't a causal connection between the two of those things, between the exercise of the workplace right or the having of the workplace right and the termination of employment. One of the workplace rights is that the employee has a right to make a complaint about anything in relation to the employee's employment. Now, that's extremely broad. So it depends upon the interpretation of that by the court. So in a particular decision of Peer and King that was delivered this year, the full federal court interpreted what it was that the employee was in fact 
able to make a complaint about, to bring it within the jurisdiction? Could it just be anything at large or did it need to be in relation to particular issues or underpinned by the contract of employment or a statutory right to complain, for instance? And the full federal court, in effect, found the latter that if there's a contractual right to complain or the employee complains about breach of contract, that's a complaint that the employee is able to make using the words of the legislation. So the employee has to be able to be able to make the complaint under the words, using the words of the legislation. And the full court said an employee is able to make a complaint if the employee can make a complaint about breach of contract or even breach of the ACL, the Australian Consumer Law, for instance, uh, for misleading or or, uh, deceptive conduct, which is a very popular claim that an employee might associate with this, that in and of itself is a complaint that the employee is able to make. A complaint, for instance, that the employee wasn't paid or will not be paid the employee's long service leave, annual leave, any other statutory entitlement, all of those kinds of things. So if it's underpinned by a statutory entitlement and the employee makes a claim that that statutory entitlement is not being paid or the statute's being breached, even if there's no mechanism under the statute to complain, the full federal court said that entitles the employee to make a complaint. So that really puts some fairly firm parameters around what an employee could complain about, but they were very wide parameters. So that was one notable decision that the full federal court delivered this year, Pia and King. And in that decision as well, they applied another established decision, which was DeFalla and the Fair Work Commission. And DeFalla and the Fair Work Commission stood for the proposition that an employee can't get, uh, so I should rephrase that, the employer is entitled to terminate the contract in the most beneficial way to it. And that principle applies when determining compensation. So if there's evidence before the court that the employer would have terminated the contract within a certain period of time anyway, even setting aside the prohibited termination, then that's the compensation that the that must be awarded. So if there's evidence that the employee was, there was misconduct and within three months or six months the employer was going to terminate anyway, well, then that's the period of compensation that can be awarded. And that's the decision of DeFalla and the Fair Work Commission, which was applied by the full court of the federal court in Peer and King. I was going to ask that. In most workplace relations like in virtually all relations there's usually a bit going on and it, there's not a, usually a singular or single thing that gives rise to a rupture or a complaint or a dismissal as it were termination uh, of the relationship so how does the court work out whether or the fair work commission as the case may be work out whether the termination if it was a termination occurred for that reason rather than just simply as you say misconduct lack of performance inability to play well with others whatever the case may be that's exactly right so that came into play not only in peer and king but that now very frequently comes into play in most decisions because that's well in ruhizid again for instance that was the 5.2 million dollar question and the employer in ruhizid again ran the argument that based on DeFalla and the Fair Work Commission, that the employment relationship had broken down to such an extent that that the employee would have been terminated shortly thereafter in any event. And so therefore, the future economic loss had to be capped. It couldn't be the $2.79 million, I think it was, um, compensation for future economic loss that was in fact awarded. And Justice Kerr in the federal court said 
based on Defala and Fair Work Commission. Well, I don't accept that Defala and the Fair Work Commission stands for the proposition that if an employee, so the complaints in Ruhizidgan and Technology One that the employee, it was successful in showing that he made, were seven complaints of bullying. This employee said that he had been bullied and he made seven allegations and those were the seven complaints that Justice Kerr found were complaints that he was able to make for the purposes of sections 340 and 341. And then Justice Kerr said, I don't accept that DeFalla and the Fair Work Commission, that decision is authority for the proposition that if an employee is bullied so much that the employment relationship breaks down because the employee no longer trusts that he's not going to get bullied, or the employer thinks he's going to make more complaints about bullying and therefore would have sacked him anyway, that DeFala and Fair Work Commission can't possibly work that way. Sounds uh, like rewarding bad behaviour to me in terms of the argument right. they're putting. But if I, if I treat you so badly that, that you're going to leave, therefore my damages are capped. That's almost what I, mean, Justice, I don't know much about the area, but it doesn't sound very good to me. That's right. So that's, in effect, what Justice Kerr found. He distinguished DeFala and Fair Work Commission on that basis and he said in any event, if the employment relationship had broken down to such an extent that that was the employer's fault because well, he actually named the employees, that was their fault for having bullied the Mr. Ruhizidigan on the seven occasions in any event, and so they can't rely upon that now. So that's how DeFala and the Fair Work Commission were circumvented in the Ruhizidigan decision. And that's what's on appeal, that, that particular well, question or a number I, of questions? I haven't actually seen the notice of appeal, but I suspect that would be one of many, because there are so many elements to these claims and there's just so much law around each of the elements, I suspect there would be a lot of points of appeal, but I can't say that. <laughs> so I suppose um, what that means is that we can look forward to another excellent CPD when the uh, decision of the full federal court comes uh, comes down. Yes, and to see the amount they may award more or less damages, I'm not sure, although one component of the damages were agreed between the parties, so I can't imagine that could be overturned. But the way the damages were arrived at, that may be something that is looked at by the full federal court and whether relief should have been granted at all. Uh, well, Penny, Fahim, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for a very informative discussion. As I say, the CPD was excellent and I certainly commend it to everyone to go onto our Greenway Chambers website, download it, look at it all and learn a lot more about these general protection claims under the Fair Work Act 2009. Penny, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Frank. And Fahim? Thank you, Frank. Hello, uh, it's Frank Hicks here, and today I'm joined by our producer of the program, the one that does all the really hard work to get the uh, podcast out there, uh, our assistant clerk, Shani McPhee. How are you, Shani? I'm good, thanks, Frank. How are you? Very well, thank you. Very well. It's delightful to uh, to be talking to you um, about uh, and in this segment. Now, you have a very interesting uh, sideline or social uh, activity that you're going to talk to us about today. Isn't that right? I do. It's a little unexpected. <laughs> it's fantastic. You're a trapeze artist. Yes. Yes. That's fantastic. Now, uh, when I think of trapeze, uh, I think of bars and people swinging in big tents above a net. 
Uh, is that what we're talking about or is it something a little different? Uh, so it's slightly different. I perform on a single point trapeze. So there's no swinging and I'm usually by myself. But with that, we can manipulate the bar, manipulate the ropes to be able to do some spinning, some posing, and you can sort of climb up the ropes and set things up so that you can do drops and things on it as well. Fantastic. So the sort of stuff that uh, anyone who's seen Cirque du Soleil would be familiar with. Yes, but way less impressive. <laughs> I have a long way to go to get to Cirque du Soleil. <laughs> I'm sure that's not true. I'm sure that it's it's quite impressive. Now, um, you've done a number of performances uh, in the area, local area up around the northern beaches, haven't you? Yes. So I have done a handful of student showcases. There's generally one per year, occasionally two. We've performed at the Brookvale Show with the Northern Beaches Council a few times, and I've done a charity performance with the Humpty Dumpty Foundation. And who is it that you train with? Uh, So the studio is called Integral Aerial Arts. They're located in Brookvale. Excellent. And how long have you been training with them for? Four years now. Um, It's gone really quickly. Every time the anniversary comes up, I can't believe how much time has actually passed. And uh, do they grade you or uh, do they indicate how you're progressing along or is it a little more organic than that? Uh, It is more organic. They really prioritise a sense of community and making sure that it's something that you do because you love it. They do have levels ranging from beginners to advanced and they monitor each student and then at the time that they feel the student is ready to move up a level they just sort of quietly pull you aside and let you know that they want you to give it a try and they're always so supportive so even in the beginning when they moved me up to the advanced class I was extremely nervous and they were so supportive they didn't push me to do anything I wasn't comfortable with and it just went from there it was so easy and stress-free. Well, that's fantastic. It sounds like a, a very good organisation that, as you say, are very supportive and encouraging and allow people to develop to the uh, level that they can get to. And uh, it's certainly impressive that you've reached the advanced stage. Um, now, tell me, have you always been a, a show performer or a, a trapeze uh, artist or wh- where does your athletic background lie? I was an ice skater for 14 years. I started when I was six years old and it was everything to me. And right after I graduated from high school, I went to America and I lived there for two years. Um, I knew that with injuries and things, my career, I didn't have a lot of time left uh, just with my body holding up. So we put in sort of a final push for the 2014 Olympics. But unfortunately, three months after I moved to the US, I had a pretty serious knee injury. And um, we gave it about 18 months of recovery and trying to get it through and it just, it didn't come back. So that, that all kind of came to an end in 2013. Well, that's obviously a shame, but uh, when one door closes, another one opens and you've now found yourself with the integral arts group and um, doing single point trapeze. Yeah, exactly. And it's such an incredible community that I'm, I can, I can only be happy with the direction that things went in. Well, as I say, I mean, it's always a shame when things don't work out as one might have hoped or dreamed even uh, when they were young. But look, uh, there's never an end. It's always another another stage. And we're certainly thrilled to have you at Greenway as our assistant clerk. I'm particularly thrilled to have you producing our 
podcast and um, we're all very, very happy and looking forward to your next performance on the trapeze. Oh, thank you. Uh, well, thank you very much for joining us, Shani, and, and sharing your story and your interests at the moment. Uh, it's been wonderful and uh, all the best going forward in the future. Thank you, Frank. Okay, thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Uh, that's been Shani McPhee talking to me, Frank Hicks. Thank you for listening to Law Talking. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual and are not representative of Greenway Chambers. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts, and if you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review. You can also listen to Law Talking on Spotify, Google Podcasts, or our website. Be sure to visit greenway.com.au to access the show notes and for more information on today's speakers.